for some reason, tell me if this happens in the original too. Is there a Moby Dick like creature in the ocean in the original film? So Monstro the Whale is terrifying in the original, and here Monstro the Kaiju is a thing that exists. everyone and welcome to episode 35 we officially passed the one year barrier last week and we are in a new untapped water of potential my name is brandy king i am one of your husbands today i am joined alongside my disney 5 co-host noah guzman who's hot sitting with lots of puppies today noah how you feeling what is up brandon this is an exciting week for all things disney we have marvel announcements we have star wars announcements we have so many trailers i doubt we'll be able to talk about every single one of them but there are a handful that caught our attention and i think they're going to catch your attention if you're listening to this and just celebrated filming our first couple episodes of directorial debut season one which should be out in the next couple of weeks so keep your eye out for that on our podcast feed we're very excited for that and we hope you guys will stay tuned for that while we are getting into the Disney mood, of course, uh, D23 happened earlier this week. Literally, as we're taping this, it's still going on. We figured we'd divide this up like Sam and I did last year when we talked about Disney Plus Day into our Disney General and Pixar section, our Star Wars section, and our Marvel section. So let's just hop into it real quick, because it's probably going to be a fairly quicker episode than we're probably used to. Future Me is going to be very happy with the editing, but that's for another time. Let's talk about Disney and Pixar. We got a couple of fairly big things announced for, uh, for this time. Th- things that we knew were coming, that we kind of anticipated were coming, but we got some definitive proof on. Uh, we got the first trailer for the long-in-development Enchanted sequel, Disenchanted. Uh, the entire team is back for that. Amy Adams, Patrick Dempsey, James Marsden as basically every Disney prince ever. It looks fun. It's set for a uh, Thanksgiving release date this year, so we don't have to wait too much longer for it. I know there have been a lot of Enchanted fans who've been dying to see this, and we'll get into it. We also got the Mustafa Lion King prequel confirmed. We knew that there was a Lion King prequel in the works from Barry Jenkins, who did Moonlight it feels you could talk a lot of other things uh we didn't know what it was going to be about now it's confirmed to be around Mufasa Barry Jenkins came out on stage did a really passionate speech about why the story means a lot to him and that is scheduled for a 2024 release so it'll be a, li- a bit longer for that the two biggest details though came from the Pixar and live action panels uh, as far as Pixar goes we got new details on their upcoming films Elemental and then Elio which is going to be based on the idea of like what if a human was ambassador for aliens seems kind of cute but none of that matters because Inside Out is getting a sequel, and Pete Docter isn't directing it, and a lot of the cast isn't returning, and it's very weird, but we'll get into it. But Inside Out is getting a sequel, and it sounds amazing. But of course, the biggest thing that has got everyone, you know, up in a tizzy is the first teaser for The Little Mermaid, starring Halle Bailey from Chloe X. Halle as Ariel, set for now a May 2023 release. We've got a bunch of other casting confirmations as well. Aquafina, I believe Javier Bardem is still part of the cast. Noah, as far as just these couple of announcements, obviously this isn't everything, but as far as general Disney and Pixar stuff, what about any of this stands out to you? Little Mermaid at the at the forefront. We have just a tremendous performer taking on that lead role. It's a shame that, you know, Ariel will be silenced for like maybe the second half of the movie or whatever. But as much as we can get out of the teaser, I just, I can't wait to see what she brings to this new uh, generation of us understanding the character, um, the visuals that this that this team has uh, put together for a live action aerial and what a mermaid would look like, what her environments look like all so far have intrigued me, uh, especially the, t- the tale of Ariel. They've like done something that looks almost, it's a mermaid's tail that gives me more of an impression of like a fairy's wings. Like they're so, they're so soft. They're so gentle. It just, the way it moves in the water, I think is just going to be visually amazing. That being said, 
I'm very curious on how we're going to have our friends who are fishes, our aquatic friends presented to us. I'm curious of what that flounder look is going to be when it's finalized. What is Sebastian going to look like? Sebastian leads so many coral numbers that if he has an off look to him or he just looks too human-like, I know that that's going to kind of dissuade myself and perhaps some people who are interested as well. Uh, so let's go ahead and get some finalized looks over uh, Flounder, over Sebastian. Uh, I just know Ursula is going to look nightmarish, uh, depending on how they really capture her scene. Uh, some of these environments we've we've been shown, like the sunken ship that Ariel goes and explores and collects, you know, relics from or artifacts of the surface world, that already looks very dark and so i'm afraid that this live action film is not going to capture as much as like the lightness of ariel or like her world and how colorful it may be because of this live action approach but that's not to say that it's not going to be enjoyable i mean i like sort of the darker settings and i bet other people will too so this is going to be a new version of the little mermaid so uh you know that teaser got me excited just as much as i think everybody else if nothing else it's an effective first teaser like it does exactly what it needs to do especially for diehard fans I don't love the lighting. I can see with a lot of that, this is the same. Uh, cinematographers worked on a lot of Rob Marshall's other movies, uh, like Into the Woods in Chicago. And while I think it, that style works for other movies, I wish it would bring some of the brightness that we saw with some of the like, Mary Poppins Returns, which I know everyone is not a huge fan of, but I think visually that movie does a lot with its uh, source material. I think Hallie looks great. I think she looks so good. She sounds fantastic. I think she's absolutely going to kill this role. The cast is mostly good. I still don't love Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. I think I wish they had gone more of like the actual drag direction with that character, but you know, it is what it is. And again, we'll talk about more, you know, live action Disney remakes later, but as far as an announcement teaser go, yeah, this is for the fans. This should be exciting and it looks good. I hope to get more nuance and distinction later on from what you mentioned. I do want to transition to the Inside Out discussion, Inside Out 2, being that there are cast members who are not returning. Is there, is there something to look into there or is this just going to be a completely separate story? I just, there's so much connection to Amy Poehler's happy or joy that she presented in the first Inside Out. I'm curious why in the sequel we wouldn't wish to keep that. Well, they mentioned during the panel that we're going to see new emotions. Apparently, both Mindy Kaling and Bill Hader are not coming back. There was apparently some salary disputes that Variety was reporting on. I think that's kind of shameful. Uh, like, this is Pixar we're talking about. They're usually pretty good to their performers, especially for returning projects. And the fact they got Amy Poehler back, who, frankly, is having less of a great career right now than either of them, but that's neither here nor there. But I think the fact that they're bringing her back in that such a role means something for probably the character. I wish they had kept that consistency going. But again, it's being directed by Kelsey Mann, who I was not familiar with. He's done a lot of, like, Legend Partners a Monkey and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, and he's worked for Pixar Shorts for a while. So I think this will be his director role to feature. I was not able to fact-check that, but I'm curious to see what him and uh, Michael Lafave, who's coming back to write the script, can actually do, because I adore Inside Out so much. It was It's still my favorite film of 2015. I think it's pretty much a masterpiece, and I want to see what they can do with that environment going forward. Disenchanted, coming now 16 years after the original movie, Enchanted. And then we have a prequel to The Lion King called Mufasa. How do you feel about Disney piping out these projects that are becoming less and less I'm going to say original and more so just like, I see the Mufasa title and I just think cash grab because it's associated to the Lion King, which is of course this huge picture. I mean, it's a show on Broadway, all these different things that are associated with the Lion King, but why are we exploring Mufasa's character? Why are we stuck on these familiar titles that now have been done to death? I, 
I don't want a Mufasa prequel. I don't think we need one. I frankly don't like the Lion King live action much at all. It's very soured on me since it came out. But I have to be excited. It's Barry Jenkins. And if he has that much passion for it and, you know, that Rose VFX team is behind it and, you know, he's still the team behind it, I can't imagine it being that bad. But again, I, I have little reason to be excited for it. I have less reason to be excited for it than I do Disenchanted, which I don't afford Enchanted. But this looks fun. And, like, everyone seems to be having a cool, fun time. And But I also think it goes to a larger issue we were talking about is Disney churning out IPs like, you know, their bread and butter. And I think that's going to backfire on them very soon. Maybe sooner than you think. We'll get to it later. But I think as far as just these projects in the works, it's clear that they have creative teams behind it. I just wish they would use it for something else. I guess with that, we'll move on to Star Wars, which there wasn't a ton. Uh, it's mostly regurgitating stuff that we saw from uh, Celebration and uh, a couple other things from the past one months. But a couple of new things here and there. We got our first proper teaser for The Mandalorian Season 3. That was shown at Celebration. We don't have a specific 2023 release date, but we know it's coming out next year. More Baby Grogu, more, Go- more Bo-Katan, more Babu Frick from Rise of Skywalker, which is going to become a fan favorite. Um, we got a new trailer for Andor Season 1, which that's coming out in just a couple weeks. We will be doing that soon. And we also got confirmation that Season 2 will also be 12 episodes. We also got the first trailer for Tales of the Jedi, which we had heard about at Celebration was going to be a couple of like anthology-style stories of Jedi that we knew. This one is going to be primarily focusing on Ahsoka Tano, Count Dooku, and Qui-Gon Jinn. Liam Neeson is coming back to voice Qui-Gon, which is very cool. Uh, trailer looks very cool, I and mean, we'll get into it. Uh, that's going to be six episodes released in the same day, actually, on October 26th. So you won't have to wait that long for it. Um, not Star Wars related, but we got the new trailer for the Willow series. That's kind of a modified version of what we saw at Star Wars Celebration. So if you're excited for that, it's coming out um, right around Thanksgiving time, I believe. And then not announced, but this was a couple of days before. For any of you Squid Game fans, uh, Lee Jong Jae from uh, Squid Game, who of course plays the lead uh, by Han in that, he joins Star Wars The Acolyte, which is going to be starring uh, Mandel Stenberg, Jody Turner-Smith. That's going to be coming out sometime next year. Very High Republic slash Sith-oriented show that we don't know too much about, but he's joining that. And it's very exciting. Uh, Noah, any of the Star Wars stuff that stuck out to you, even though it's not quite new? Just the fact that when I when we approached the topic of Star Wars and all the content that's feeding from there, I just got off my point of why are we doing these IPs to death for the, you know, original Disney stories. And then we turn over to star Wars. And of course, here's like eight different series that are coming after that, that initial uh, franchise, but I, I'm not dissuaded from them because they do feel separate um, in their intentions and what characters they want to explore. I do have questions around tales of the Jedi, including um, Ahsoka Tano, because she is getting her own series. So I'm curious as to why they chose to explore her, and her adventures uh, alongside Dooku's, as you mentioned, or Qui-Gon Jinn's in that specific series um, over other Jedis that I'm sure uh, somebody who's read like the lore and who has like their list of top Jedis who have never been seen before. I'm sure there are plenty exceptional um, Jedis to dive into instead, but I'm not, I'm not turned off to any of these. I think that uh, when it comes to my, my excitement, it's immediately going to be attached to Mandalorian season three. If you have not seen that teaser yet, uh, I just watched it before we recorded and I was looking at Brandon. He saw the live reaction of me just feeling short winded because this season seems like they're going to up the ante with intensity, with action, with stakes. It just, it looks visually so great that I think, um, Season one of The Mandalorian might have had like this slow pace feel to it. It seems like season three is going to have a lot more um, drive behind it or maybe just that fast paced kind of storytelling, which I'm absolutely here for. Um, we get a wonderful line from Bo-Katan talking to Grogu and mentioning how uh, she just references 
Mando as being Grogu's dad. And I don't know if that's been said before in the Mandalorian universe, like he is your dad, but them just saying that makes me, makes me chuckle, makes my heart light up, especially because this is a little old man. Like <laughs> Grogu's like 80 or like 90 years old. It's so hilarious. Um, <laughs> but the only thing uh, that wasn't announced that we're still kind of having high hopes for is uh, that second season of Star Wars Visions. Um, that kind of project where we saw different animation studios approach their own method of storytelling for Star Wars. You know, I, I am looking forward to maybe announcements that uh, have to do with that. But other than that, I mean, all of these look interesting. I, the only one that I have not explored yet is going to be the Bad Batch. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm glad that that series is getting a season two for the fans of the show. You did also bring that up, and I forgot to mention that Bad Batch has been pushed back to next year. I'm pretty sure that's to avoid conflicts with Cassian and, um, Cassian. I'm pretty sure that's to avoid conflicts with Andor and Mandalore in season three, but, you know, for any fans out there, we have to wait a bit longer. Kind of sucks. Uh, and you're right. Weird that we didn't hear any Visions news because we saw concept art and kind of the new studios announce a celebration. We thought maybe we'd get some more visuals from this. Apparently, they're taking more time with it. I have no problem with that. Take all the time you need with Visions. I think that show needs all the time and appreciation that it deserves. Um, the Mandalorian trailer is fun. It doesn't give us too much, but it gives us, as you mentioned, kind of the stakes behind it, like, we're seeing more of the Grogu, Pedro Pascal, Mandalorian kind of trifecta that the whole show is kind of building towards the idea of like, maybe not the Civil War of the Mandalorians, but the idea of what Grogu represents in the line of Mandalorianism that could be pushed forward. And I really love that idea. There wasn't too much with Star Wars, but there was a good amount of Marvel. And by good amount of Marvel, I mean the stuff that we didn't get, but we'll talk about that. Uh, we got a couple trailers. Uh, first and foremost, we got our first look at Werewolf by Night. This is starring Gail Garcia Bernal. It's going to be a Halloween special set for October 7th, so literally just a couple weeks away. Um, we also got our first look at Secret Invasion. Finally, the series with um, Samuel L. Jackson and Kobe Smulders. That is set for next year. We also got confirmation that Kehwe Kwan, who we're all rooting for for Best Supporting Actor right now for Everything Everywhere, he has joined Loki Season 2. We don't know in what as of yet, but it's cool that he's part of that. He came on stage and kind of joked at the Indiana Jones pastiche of it all, so that'll be fun. A couple of developments for Captain America New World Order. Um, Danny Ramirez, who we all really liked, I think we already liked, in Falcon and Winter Soldier. He's coming back as Joaquin Torres, aka the new Falcon. And Tim Blake Nelson from The Incredible Hulk is coming back as the leader for the first time in, I think it'll be 16 years at that point, so that's kind of exciting. We also got our first look and confirmation at the Thunderbolts roster, the uh, Jake Schreier Suicide Squad-esque villains-led team that we've been kind of teasing towards for a while. That lineup is going to be comprised of Yelena Belova, Winter Soldier, U.S. Agent, Red Guardian, Ghost, Taskmaster, and Valentina, a.k.a. Julie Lewis Drivers' character. And all of the actors are going to be coming back. Brandon, let's just pause real quick and take a breath. Are we really going to have a team assembled with Ghost, who we last saw in Ant-Man and the Wasp, with Yelena Belova from we just saw in Hawkeye, the Winter Soldier, Sebastian Stan. Thank you for coming back. This is a team that no one, I think, could have put together based off of what we have currently the MCU. I'm so happy it's as large as it is. And I'm the best point of all of this is all actors are set to reprise their roles. That is That is so amazing. The biggest thing is Fantastic Four. We got official confirmation that Matt Shackman from WandaVision is going to be directing the movie. Uh, Kevin Feige came on stage to talk about it and basically said, yep, it's coming out 2024. Shackman is directing it and that's it. And so no cast. We all thought there was going to be a cast announcement. There was a lot of rumors coming out that maybe like Joey Comer was in the mix. Maybe John Boyega was in the mix. So Noah, going over to you, obviously the Fantastic Four thing has gotten a lot of people's attention. But aside from that, what of this kind of caught your eye and ear? Everyone, werewolf by night. 
Brandon yep. pointed this out to me as being something I should check out because it seems like it's more on the horror front. And I said, Brandon, we're talking about D23. What are you talking about telling me that there's going to be some kind of horror topic I might be interested in? Are you kidding me? Oh. And then I pressed play on the trailer. And this is a black and white. I almost want to call it noir, but I'm not. I'm instead going to say... If there's gamer fans out there, I'm sorry, this is going to be kind of for a niche listener, okay? If there are gamer fans out there who are fans of the Call of Duty Zombie series and they are aware of how their like trailers and how their cinematics look, how they almost look like they're filmed on some burned footage or just like very raw early age filmmaking, uh, you know, capturing, that's what Werewolf by Night looks like. You check out that trailer and you just get the vibe that it's old timey, that for one, it's a, it's a murder mystery because we're trying to figure out who the werewolf is in this room full of maybe already monsters. It looks like you don't know what the hell is going on, but your eyes are glued to the screen. And as soon as we get more details surrounding Werewolf by Night, that just immediately caught my attention. I, I asked Brandon too. I said, are you sure this is Disney? He's like, yes, no, it exists. Like, um, do we know if it's directly tied to the MCU? No, but we know that it is presented, um, as a picture from Marvel Studios. So we can only imagine where this fits in, if at all. Uh, that being said, it just looks incredible. It looks entirely fresh and uh, raw. And I, I can't wait for more details surrounding that. And the the second topic of interest is Amelia Clark's involvement was the first piece of news that made me interested. But now that I've seen the trailer, holy crap, Secret Invasion is going to be... It's going to be like the Mission Impossible, like down to the wire. Somebody has infiltrated our governments, our um, our factions. They are here to cause havoc. And it is... Colby Smulders, Maria Hill, and Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury that are now coming to this threat that is the scrolls probably invading like very high institutions of power. Amelia Clark, we don't know what kind of character she plays. She kind of was only a minor face in the trailer, but I'm still in Westeros land. I'm still in Game of Thrones talk with House of the Dragon going on and so happy to now have her on my screen again. I can only hope that she remains a permanent character for either this series or maybe fitting into the larger picture. But Secret Invasion, whoo, boy, that we got such great material from that. You mentioned Werewolf by Night and taking the logical progression of the Doctor Strange movies into what we think is kind of full-blown, old-school, universal-style horror. It looks really neat. Um, and I've seen a lot of like MCU disparagers on my timeline being like, Oh wait, this is really stylized and cool. And I'm like, yeah, I hope so. Cause that's what Marvel should be doing at this point. Um, I also find it really cool that Michael Giacchino is directing, who has mostly been a composer up to this point. This is a directorial debut, so to speak. So I kind of find it cool that he's doing the music and directing and that we're getting more of that kind of leniency in Disney Studios kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned Secret Invasion. Yes, Sam Jackson coming back is cool. Yes, Kobe Smulders coming back is cool. Yes, Amelia Clark coming in is cool. Uh, Olivia Coleman in the MCU. Brandon, I, oh my gosh, I didn't mention Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman in the MCU, baby. And then Ben Mendelsohn's obviously coming back from the Captain Marvel movie, so like that's super cool as well. And I hope the idea is we're not retrofitting the scrolls because the idea of the Secret Invasion comic was very much the scrolls are coming to Earth and they're the big bads and we need to watch out. I hope this is kind of going back to the idea we saw with the first Captain Marvel, which was like Telos and his group are like, no, we're refugees. We need to find a home. And there's kind of an extremist sect who believe like they're entitled to the people who wrong them kind of thing. I hope that's the direction they're playing with. But just totally wise, like, yeah, it's it's born, it's Mission Impossible, it's like all these great kind of spy tropes kind of coalescing together into an older, grittier Nick Fury who's been through the ringer a thousand times. 
and immediately feels like it picks up off of the style of the Winter Soldier, where yes. we we do have these intense car chases, explosions, and when what have you for these actions. With the Thunderbolts movie coming out, it could be the same discussion that we had around other like big team up movies. We're here, where the big questions are: How will we have a centralized story that balances all these characters well enough without just like shooing one to the side so that we can make room for Yelena or Winter Soldier? You know, these are still big names. No, they're not like the big hero names, but they've definitely been at our focus in this last phase. And the second thing I want to mention is we get so hyped up and we get so happy when these uh, features or cast lists are announced. But I think the most important news is the release dates that are announced because it's not like they, re- they they're sharing the fact that these are going to come for sure in two more years. No, the announcement is what the news is. And it's that it got announced, you know, recently at D23, that date can very easily be pushed back. And so if you, if you haven't learned by now, please set your expectations low for any of these dates to be, you know, remaining confirmed or, or remain as so, uh, with Avengers five coming out in 2025, I'm curious as to what the Thunderbolts placement in that larger phase or MCU storytelling is going to be, whether it's going to matter directly into, uh, secret wars or if it's going to carry into something that has to do with Kang. And the fact that this is coming so soon after Captain America War, I think it's like two or three months afterwards, we're probably definitely going to see more of like John Walker's personality. We might see Elena pop up in there, obviously seeing the uh, whatever the correlation is between the leader. Maybe he's the main villain for this. So maybe it's setting him up as kind of a minor threat in there. That could be interesting. Uh, Jake Schreier, I have all the faith in the world in to do this. He's a very weird choice, but I would love to see what he does with those kind of interpersonal tendencies of like a robot and Frank and bring that to something like this. Um, but yeah, let's wrap this up with, you know, Fantastic Four, because a lot of people were expecting this. It was kind of reminding me of the whole Henry Cavill at Comic-Con thing, where there were a bunch of rumors going like, Henry Cavill's going to be on stage to announce Man of Steel 2, and that didn't actually happen. So is this a matter to you of more fan expectations, things like that, or were you properly disappointed by the fact that we didn't hear much about Fantastic Four? It has been in the people's mind for now a decade, probably, that they've already set the bar for what they want this movie to do. If something is coming around the corner, maybe a year from now, yes, I want to know the cast. Yes, I want to know the story. And yes, I want trailers. But if it is so far out and with the potential to be pushed even further, I have to look at it and say, you know, I like you. I see you, but I can wait for you. And that's how I approach Fantastic Four. I mean, that's the thing is if you're November 2024 release date and we're in September 2022, you better have it close. And this could have gotten a lot of eyeballs and really kind of risen the morale for a lot of fans on this. I think it's a little disappointing, but at the same time, I know logically they need to just take their time. We just had uh, Telluride Film Festival end just a couple weeks ago. Toronto International is going on as of right now until the next week. But Venice Film Festival just ended as of today as we were recording this. And because of that, we've gotten a lot of early reactions for a bunch of what could be a lot of fall festival and indie moviegoer contention. So obviously, the big news out of all of this, and I'm sure some of you have been waiting desperately for us to talk about this. Don't worry, darling. Uh, premiered at Venice, pretty much all of the cast was there, mixed to negative results. Uh, a lot of people were praising Florence Pugh in the cinematography, a lot of people were not praising Harry Styles, but that is a whole other discussion that we might have when the movie comes out. But that is just one of them. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Brendan Fraser being brought to tears over a standing ovation for his role in The Whale, which a lot of people have been pegging as potentially the best actor frontrunner alongside Hugh Jackman in The Sun, which we might talk about later. Um, pretty much great reactions across the board for stuff like Women Talking, which is uh, Sarah Pauly's new movie with Francis McDermott and Jesse Buckley, uh, Banshees of an Insurance, which I did not expect a lot from, but that's with uh, Colin Farrell and uh, Martin McDonough. 
Uh, Bones and All, which is Timothy Chalamet's next movie about cannibals in the 80s, which sounds fascinating. Uh, Tar, which is Kate Blanchett's new composer, you know, uh, insight workaholic drama kind of movie. And The Woman King, which I cannot freaking wait for to talk about next show. We also had mixed reactions for stuff like Bardo, which is uh, Alejandro Iñárritu's next movie. He did Birdman and uh, The Revenant. Uh, Blonde with Ana de Armas, which initially got a great standing ovation. And then I've seen a lot of kind of mixed reactions across the board. Empire of Light, which is Sam Mendes' new ode to, you know, I think, 80s cinema kind of thing with Olivia Colman and uh, Colin Firth, I believe. Colin Firth, I should say. Uh, and White Noise, which is Noah Baumbach's kind of apocalyptic gas cloud movie with uh, Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver has not been getting great responses either. Either way, it says a lot of initial stuff we're going to towards season. Noah, over to you. Do any of these stand out just by initial reactions? I got to get the don't really darling discussion out of me before it Fair just enough. like that is a spectacle to say the least. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm aware of <laughs> the discussions that are ongoing. Um, the types of, you know, he said, she said banter of it all and to have it all stamped with not positive reviews, I think is like the nail in the coffin. Like this movie is. It's essentially, it's going to be doomed, but people, that's not going to stop people from seeing it because of this type of like press explosion that has come since the festival. If you go back a couple, a handful of episodes ago, I did kind of have high praise and high expectations for this film based off its trailer, based off of Pew's attachment, based off of Wilde's direction. But after feeding into and reading some of the discussions and some of just all of the hectic and chaos that's coming out of there, it's really tainted my expectations for the film. I, was invited recently by a friend who has an early screening to go watch it. I'm happy I won't be spending money to see this film. Um, secondly, Brandon Fraser, the the director, uh, Darren Aronofsky, was hoping to reintroduce an actor into the limelight or spotlight with this movie, The Whale. I'm so happy that it is someone like Fraser who um, is receiving this kind of attention alongside Sadie Sink, baby, like Fear Street, 1974, um, Sadie Sink's like, thank you for more Sadie on my big screen. I just think that she's a star to watch and we all are. So uh, looking forward to any kind of emotionality that the two bring out for this movie, The Whale. I'm not entirely confident on like the, the genre and by confident, I mean aware. I'm not entirely aware on the film's genre or its primal focus in storytelling, but based off of these reactions, I mean, I think it should get everyone excited. Like if Brendan Fraser is returning and he's getting this much of a, of support from the industry, I think that's something worth watching. I had seen a couple of negative reactions for The Whale, but it, pretty much it's universally positive across the board, especially for Frasier and especially for Sink. And I was kind of imagining, like, can you imagine if Sadie Sink gives the, the performance of her, of her TV career so far with Stranger Things and the performance for their film career so far with uh, The Whale and doesn't get nominated for either? We'd be missing out on a star's on a star's growth very early on in her career. And I'm saying like missing out. But if those of you haven't known, I think we said it before, like Sadie Stink was Annie. Like what? Yeah. Like she was freaking Annie. So it's a Broadway song. So much star power there already exists. Um, I can't wait to see that translate into more and more big features on the screen. Wrapping this up real quickly, um, Woman King, Rats Up Right Now, has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I could not be more excited for this movie if I tried. It looks so good. And the reactions coming out have been so great. Um, praise Jennifer's wife, which is amazing. Um, Bones and all surprised me. A lot of really great reactions. I thought it would be a Timothy Chalamet cannibal movie in the 80s. I thought it would be a lot more divisive, but apparently everyone's loving it. So we'll see if that translates to general audiences. Interestingly enough, uh, Bardo, which is Alejandro Añarritu's next movie. Uh, not great reactions. A couple of good reactions that I've seen, but a lot of 
kind of middling things of like, oh, this is self-obsessed kind of thing, which somehow Birdman wasn't, but this was. And I'm very curious to see how that turns out. But that's interesting. Blonde, especially because we've been very curious about that for a while. And White Noise, which, you know, I'm not one to doubt Noah Baumbach, but his movies don't seem generally divisive. And I've seen a lot of divisive reactions just over what White Noise does, what it tries to focus on, although Adam Driver's apparently great with it. That's going to wrap the news portion for today's episode. And now, Brandon and I are reviving and returning to Quick Hits. It was never really dead, but for the last episode, we kind of played catch-up, so we knew that we couldn't fit in a quick hit into that episode. But now, we are going back, baby. I'm going to kick it off. If you aren't aware, we are working on posting our quick hits on our TikTok pages and our social feeds. That way, you can get a nice visual as to how we attack these one-minute storytelling pieces. Um, but without further ado, I will kick us off. So... I'll go ahead and begin with my quick hit in three, two, and one. Hello, everybody. We are expecting a return from writer-director Ryan Johnson in the sequel to Knives Out. The title for his new movie is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, introducing a whole new cast of characters except for one, and that is Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc returning as the lead investigator. Um, this film does have a trailer out right now that's going to give you the impression that it will be akin to Death on the Nile. You know, we do have a murder mystery at sea. Um, some of those characters include Edward Norton, uh, Dave Patista, Leslie Odom Jr., Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn. Like, the list goes on. This is going to be an exciting new Johnson tale. Uh, he, we know, of course, he's inspired by a lot of the Agatha Christie novels, and so I can only hope that we're going to get something that was as um, interesting and as compelling as Knives Out, now set at sea. Uh, with some uh, goofy eccentricities from Craig's character, who we got in the first feature. And time. All right. Let me just get mine set up. This is going to be difficult because I'm still not used to the camera equipment, but we'll see how it goes. In three, two. So for any of you diehard film preservation nerds out there, the name of the Criterion Collection should be vaguely familiar to you. They've been more than a thousand titles newly released and restored physical versions since their inception in the 80s. So it came as a bit of a surprise earlier this week when one of the titles announced was Wally. Yes, the Disney Pixar film Wally. Uh, the surprise came out a couple factors. Firstly, it's the first Pixar film to have a, to have a Criterion release, I should say. Uh, secondly, the collection rarely restores animated content. Wally would be only the eighth animated film overall to be joining the Criterion ranks. Uh, films like Fantastic Mr. Fox and Watership Down have gotten them before, but it's very rare. Third, Criterion is usually known for restoring titles that have been long verified by media or just lost media, and Wally is readily available on streaming service on Disney Plus along with all Pixar's other projects, so there's that. If you are a fan of the lovable robot, the new package comes with, among many other things, a 4K digital restoration complete with Dolby Atmos uh, sound engineering, a documentary from director Andrew Stanton, and the fan favorite short film, Bernie. Uh, Wally's Criterion disc will be set for release on November 22nd. I am excited for this. I'm worried because I don't want Disney getting their hands in, like, lost film preservation media, but if this needs some more animation content being preserved, then I'm all for it in time. I think that's... To me, I, I almost want to say big news, but it's more so like strange news, right? Like this is a little bit out of left field, but for something like Wally, would you like to recognize it for being deserving of this? There are maybe three Pixar films that deserve criteria. Toy Story, uh, Wally. I have no issue with it getting it on principle. It's just a matter of like, Criterion is so great with like old, you know, um, like non-Western world cinema and like lost media and things like that, that I'm worried about Disney getting their hands on that. Like, I don't think they need that. But again, if this needs some more animation content, like if we get a Persepolis or like um, like Red Turtle or Spider-Verse Criterion, yes, please. 
that's going to wrap our quick hit portion of today's episode. I hope y'all enjoyed that and stay tuned for our plugins of our social feeds at the end of the episode. And you can expect some of our quick hits and maybe some new content to be posted on those social feeds. We are trying to explore more content on TikTok. So turning over now to our new movies review portion of the episode, we are discussing two features, one released in theaters and the second being a streaming exclusive. Uh, Brandon, please introduce our first topic for review. You wish upon a star. Uh, Pinocchio is here. One of two Pinocchios this year and three in the past three years because we had that one that randomly got nominated for a bunch of Oscars last year that no one was expecting. We're also getting Guillermo del Toro's uh, project that's coming later this year, which I cannot wait for. This one is a remake of the Disney film from, of course, 1940. Uh, you know this story. We follow Tom Hanks as the lonely clockmaker Geppetto. Uh, he's lost his son. He forms a doll that he names Pinocchio because he's named, he's made of pine wood and he wishes upon the great wishing star, you know, starlight star, right? You know the idea. The blue fairy comes down, uh, played by Cynthia Rebo to grant his wish to, um, bring the boy to life. Uh, and then Jiminy Cricket is also there, uh, voiced here by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who becomes the boy's conscious to try and help him discern right from wrong. Along the way, Pinocchio gets into various misadventures through the town. He meets Honest John, here voiced by uh, Keegan Michael Key. Uh, he meets the uh, ever-present evil Stromboli, voiced by Giuseppe Battinson, and of course, makes his way to Pleasure Island uh, with the coachman, voiced by Luke Evans, and all the misadventures and shady shenanigans that come about in all of his attempts to become a real boy and understand how the world works. Noah, um, when we saw the first trailer and the first couple looks, you know, in the last month or so, because they really pushed the marketing back on this movie. For me personally, I was not super excited, but I watched the original in preparation for this. I kind of knew it was what I was going and expecting for it. I like the original. I don't adore it, but I respect what it's done for cinema. What does this do for you? It raises a question initially, which is, why are we getting so many Pinocchio projects back to back? Especially when I'm mostly just anticipating the one from Guillermo del Toro. Like, that's the one that I think is the most in inventive for the screen, maybe. Um, maybe that's what I want to say. Because watching this film, something about, I would say, the voice acting behind Pinocchio's character. Uh, Brandon, you may have countering thoughts. But for myself, it just felt very detached from the character I was witnessing on screen. I think the same can be said for the majority of the animated characters who had voice actors behind them. I am aware that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is attached to this as well as Jiminy Cricket, but it's unfortunate that I, for one, I, I couldn't tell it was him, which isn't a knock, but also just, I couldn't tell it was like someone that great because it did not feel that great. Um, I think the hardest working player here is Tom Hanks in that role of Geppetto. And that's not to give Tom Hanks like a lot of recognition because it is very, I think, um, set up for him to have this emotionality behind creating his son once more and seeing him come to life. Um, now keep in mind, I'm not a very familiar Pinocchio watcher or, you know, I'm not aware of the story of Pinocchio. Brandon, you're going to be able to speak to a lot of the similarities between the 1940s film and this one. Um, however, I will say that for one thing that we know, Pinocchio lies his nose grows always the lies tied in with his nose. And I thought that there, that that was the baseline for like this adventure that Pinocchio goes on. Instead, this movie tells you about a boy's like first day out in the real world. He gets, you know, um, he gets manipulated by like some scoundrels on the street. He gets kidnapped. He gets put into a circus ring. He destroys said circus kind of because his feet dance so fast. They catch on fire. Um, I have additional notes, but really just, you know, the first, the first thing I wanted to say was just the level of detachment 
that I had while watching this film was not something I entirely expected, but uh, walking away from, I just wanted to be honest that that was my take. I didn't have experience in full. I watched it for the first full time, like literally this past week, we can have something like that. And it's incredibly charming. It looks great. I have issues with the story. It's dark as hell. Um, and I was thinking, how can you bring this into a quote unquote live action CG mix? And maybe Zemeckis is the right guy to do it because he's trying for the last, you know, two decades to make that kind of thing work between Polar Express and, you know, the witches last year. And maybe this can work. It doesn't work. Uh, this is bad. This is very, very bad. I don't like this movie. Um, and there's so many reasons why I don't like this movie. And I really don't want to get into ranty territory, but I will say this much. Keegan Michael Key is very fun in this. I actually really enjoyed him as Honest John in the very brief moments he's in. He's not animated great, especially considering that most of his scenes are in the daytime and you can very clearly tell where all the lines are and things like that. You can tell that for a lot of the visuals in this movie, but he at least brings this kind of like weird, wacky sensibility that kind of feels attributed to the 30 and 40s vaudeville scene that you could tell the original was kind of taking from. Also, Alan Silvestri, God bless him, he's working overtime on the music and there's some really fun, you know, really beautiful string cues in there. You get to hear Cynthia Revo do When You Wish Upon a Star and it's glorious, you know, as you might think. That being said... Oh my God, this feels hollow. The characters feel like they are reading off of a list of prerequisites, which again, you can make that criticism for all the Disney live action movies, but I feel like it's the most blatant here. Then uh, Evans Ainsworth, who play, who voices up Pinocchio, who might, who you actually might know from uh, Haunting a Blind Manor. He was uh, Miles in that show. And he, I assume he's a good actor from that show. He is asked, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are both asked to be in their highest possible register. And it gets coying fast. You mentioned where, you know, this all happens in one day. They make a joke of that where like it tries to be like, oh yeah, that all happened in one day. And it feels like this monologue being developed by a five-year-old that just has no sense of substance or pacing to it. It's so cloying. I wanted to tear my ears out for that moment. And that sounds so bad, but there's just instances like that where I just felt myself going, why do I care? I cared about the original and there's nothing of that same flame of passion in here. For much of the beginning in Geppetto's workshop, yes, we are exploring what it, what it looks like for this puppet to be brought to life. And this blue fairy comes in and it's so magical. And Cynthia Revo is there and then she's gone. So the, and she gets much, to sing as much as I want to celebrate her. She's there. And then the effects they use to kind of like draw her back out the window. I was rolling my eyes at it. I'm like, what is going on here? If we're translating these beloved, colorful, animated movies into live action, there has to be some sort of shift visually to keep them bright, to keep them as engaging and I guess like magical as they once were before. Because in Geppetto's workshop, it's entirely too dim, dark, and honestly creepy. Like this film has very dark scenes and um, environments that don't make me feel comfortable watching this like if i had like a crowd of my like younger cousins with me and i'm like let's all put a fun family movie on i'm not gonna look at pinocchio as one of those movies because it does feel entirely too dark um and i just think it's it loses some of the magic that is associated with the original movies because they were animated and there's also the matter of like, and I, I hate to linger on the VFX because like we've known what's been going about Disney VFX for the last couple of months. It's bad. It's going to be messy. We understand that. And that sucks. But it's Zemeckis. Zemeckis, for whatever you want to say about him, do his credit, really tried for the last couple of decades to really make his VFX artists understand the world and understand how the characters move and everything like that. And here, like you say, it's either murky darks or the brightest of brights. Like, I didn't feel like a sense of I should be with Pinocchio on this journey, experiencing this with him. Like, maybe if I was a little kid, I would. 
the original does that. And I felt in tune with like every storybook-esque aspect of what the setting was going for. And here it's just Pinocchio does a thing. Look at the thing. Reading his filmography now, um, you may be familiar with something called Back to the Future. Back to the Future Part 2, Part 3. Um, more so on my front, I'm, a, I'm one of the few fans, maybe they're not that few, of Beowulf. I was a fan of Beowulf. Um, I watched probably the Polar Express every Christmas with my family. Castaway, we are aware of his attachment to Tom Hanks, even before that Forrest Gump. It's like, it's astounding to have that many features under your belt where you are in the director's chair and approach a story like Pinocchio and have it feel so untethered. You know, no one can really find themselves in this story. Well, like even worse than that, you know who was attached before this? Paul King, who did the Paddington movies. And they said, and, well, actually... Great. It was because of scheduling conflicts, so fair enough. But still, could you imagine a Paddington-esque version of this? It would have been so fun and charming and, like, actually satirical, like the idea of what Pinocchio's... And this is just Pinocchio. Do you think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Jiminy Cricket is a saving grace of this film? No. No, he's not. I really don't. And, oh my God, they try. They try. They try even in the final act where for some reason tell me if this happens in the original too is there a moby dick like creature in the ocean in the original film so monstro the whale is terrifying in the original and here monstro the kaiju is a thing that exists what's going on in the original is it that much of a hero moment for pinocchio to become a speedboat of sorts (laughs) why did they make that choice in this second one don't get me started on the physics of Pinocchio. They made no sense in the original, and they still make no sense here. There is a line to be drawn when Pinocchio can... Okay, fine, he can eat. Fair enough, we accept the magic. He can become a speedboat. Okay, we get it. He's magic. He has certain abilities, fair enough, that make him more exceptional than a real... Fair enough. But, like, explain that. Show it. Like, do something to develop it. Instead of just being like, we need something to get them out of the water. Make him a speedboat. Um, and beyond that, Monster in the original film is terrifying. Like, it's this big, bold sperm whale that is just this monster beast of the deep. And here, all of a sudden, like, I was expecting them, oh, here comes Monstro, and it's a thing with, like, wings and tentacles that's also kind of a sperm whale. And, like, I know I'm spoiling this, but all of you have seen Pinocchio at some point. You know this story. It angers me that I can't be more kind to a movie like this when I know there's heart behind it. I won't spoil the ending because it is different from the original, but I will say just as far as... The original goes, I think it handles it so much more cleanly, so much more just precisely to the characters of Pinocchio and Geppetto. And this one just kind of goes, ah, movie ends, you think of it up. And it's that idea of you can't even end it like that. You just have to kind of phone it in and just do it to get the kids, you know, there for, I think it's like 100 minutes is the runtime. The original was like 80. It's not that much of a difference, and yet it feels like an eternity. I wish I was a puppet watching this movie. I think that that's the only way you're going to get me to rewatch this movie. Um, you know, string me up, tie me up and put it on in front of me. I will rewatch this film. However, until that point, I'm going to say thank you, Maria. Next. <laughs> okay. That's the best thing I could come up with. Brandon, this is a two out of 10 for me. This is one of my least favorite of this year. Um, Calling it a favorite is not even appropriate. Uh, But then again, grown man talking about animated feature for a children's movie. I'm still going to be critical about it. I have defended Zemeckis' work for a while. I like The Walk. Nobody likes The Walk. I enjoyed The Walk. Um, I've defended Disney live action movies in the past. I like Beauty and the Beast. I love Jungle Book. I think, oh God, there's probably others that I'm, Blanking out, but like there are good ones in there. 
this is a two and a half out of 10. It is not worth your time. It's certainly not worth a Disney Plus launch title. If this is your poster child for what you have to offer in your streaming service, rethink your everything. There are so many baffling decisions in here that don't work. I would say just watch the original. It might be scary at times, but I think it'll be worth it just for, again, what the story and characters are actually trying to charm you on. Again, Keegan-Michael Key gets a couple of brief moments, but he's not in there that much. Alan Silvestri is working overtime on the music, but the visuals, the story, the charm, none of it is there. Tom Hanks can't save this movie. At the very least in Elvis, like he's working off of Austin Butler. Here, he's working on a tennis ball, and you can tell it all the time. It is available on Disney+. Plus If you have a subscription and an hour to kill, fine, why not? But neither of us can recommend this. All right. I think that this is going to be a step up in our um, maybe hopes and dreams for the next feature that we're covering. Just maybe, because we haven't gotten into it yet. But we are going to now transition to Tilda Swinton. Idris Elba being directed by George Miller in a theatrical release title, 3,000 Years of Longing. George Miller is back. Uh, after seven years since Magnus Fury Road, he is finally back with another weird, wacky, uh, Inception-like dream sequence of a movie. Uh, that's a lot more than that, I think. Uh, written by Augusta Gore based on the short story, uh, The Gin and the Nightingale by A.S. Piat, starring, as you mentioned, Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. We follow Alethea, who is a British literary scholar. She studies the idea of stories and mythologists from around the world. She's in a conference in Istanbul. She comes across a souvenir shop uh, that one of her other professors is taking her to, and she finds this kind of bottle that she's just attached to. She winds up cleaning it back in her hotel room, and surprise, giant Idris Elba comes out, and then small Idris Elba comes out. Uh, Idris Elba in this movie is Jin. He is a genie from thousands of years ago who has been in prison in this for some time. We're not incredibly quite sure. But he basically says, you have, you know, the old shtick, you have released me. I will grant you your heart's desire. Three wishes are yours. And she goes, no. He's like, no. And he goes, yes. As in no, because I know what happens to wishes and stories. And so he proceeds to tell her the stories of him being trapped in the bottle several times before his previous owners, including a young inventor in the Turkish Empire, who he may or may not have had a romance with, uh, his potential relationship with the Queen of Sheba and her kind of servants and the kind of royal dismantling that went on back then and we kind of get this insight into both the jinn's thousands of years of suffering and what he wants from just his own life and alethea and what she might have lost she's a uh, divorce she's kind of just been on her own for the last number of years and we try and find what the commonality is between these two characters you know what this was interesting just from the premise of george miller coming back I, it was also him coming back that wasn't mad max we were kind of wondering what he would do after this how much did this work for you i would say it's like 70% of the film worked for me because that's going to be the portion of the film that covers what the title suggests. 3,000 years of longing. We have a djinn who has been trapped and held in captivity. We are understanding just what kind of life, if you can call his existence that, what kind of life he has lived up until this point and what it means now that he has encountered this new person who, who actually like studies stories in Tilda Swinton's character and off of that point, I was ready for, for one, the introduction of the story to cover what those 3,000 years have looked like, if we're covering all of them. What has it looked like for him to exist for all of this length of time? And who are the characters he has interacted with? What wishes has he granted? And what like misfortunes have fallen upon the people who have wished for them? Because that's kind of the nature of the djinn, is you can have your wish, but it's going to come at a cost. And that cost is usually... That cost is always the caveat to having the thing that you desire most of all. It's not surprising that Tilda Swinton's character is more 
guarded when it comes to approaching the gym because she is aware she's an intellectual. She knows that she may be manipulated by her own desires. So she doesn't let herself immediately make three wishes. Instead, she wants to learn, uh, about those stories as as they were uh, told by the djinn. And that's the bulk of the movie. At least that's what feels like the bulk of the movie is what these different journeys have looked like for the djinn, um, troubles he has faced and what things he has overcome up until this point. I want to just talk about more of the production details behind those moments of storytelling from the past because everything is just so much more engaging to work with and also interesting, visually appealing. It's unfortunate though, because after those stories are told, and while that is the bulk of the story, like there's plenty to learn from the djinn based off of that first half of the story, the final act is all about that wish that Tilda Swinton makes and how it affects their relationship moving forward. At that point, the film drops its intentions for what it's supposed to do. Cause that's where I lost myself as a viewer. I looked down at my watch and I said, Oh, we're past the halfway point, And I kind of don't know where the story is going and what it's trying to do. I knew what it was doing in the beginning because I had the impression that we were going to learn about this Jin's life and then see it come to uh, fruition or see how it would affect this new person who's making wishes in her modern life. It doesn't do that. Or if it does, it only sticks to one of her wishes and I, it raises a lot of questions for me, you know, around the, around the decision, around what that original story was meant to incite or uh, meant to inspire. Well, I'm glad real quick you brought up the uh, technical aspect of it because it's a lot of the same team from Mad Max Fury Road. It's still Margaret Sixel's editing. It's still John Steele's uh, cinematography, who I think came out of retirement for this. Uh, and then Junkie XL still doing the music, which there's a Middle Eastern kind of string melody that's played early on that kind of carries on throughout the movie. It's this very kind of like emotional, very cozy kind of melody that kind of carries you through. Um, I really like this movie. Kind of surprised because I saw a lot of people initially being like, oh, it's, you know, too self-indulgent. It doesn't really make any sense. And, you know, it uses the George Millerisms of like, you know, the zoom-ins and the kind of quick cuts like to its disadvantage. And I was like, yes to all of those. It is a mess. The third act doesn't really go where I'd like it to go. And yeah, you can definitely feel like the movie is dragging at times. But I'd also be lying if I wasn't able to say that at least a third, if not two-thirds of the runtime, I was kind of sitting on my chair just going like, and then what happened? Like, I felt like a child being told a bunch of bedtime stories, and it was really kind of comforting for a while until we get the third act. But even then, it doesn't ruin the movie for me. I really felt like it kind of ended on this really poetic note that kind of tied up the loose ends and themes of the story, almost as if, like us, Althea was learning from those stories into her own life. If that's the idea, it's fairly simple, but it's one that stuck with me a lot more than I thought it would. Excellent point on a child hearing stories passed down from whoever is in front of them, uh, be it a parent, a mentor, or a friend. And I agree with you. Those parts of the movie feel very intentional. And I'm, and you're rewarded as a viewer because the visuals don't stop. Like the types of worlds that the djinn exists in, uh, are just beautiful. They're mesmerizing and it, they do beg the question for the viewer of like, like you say, like, what is that next wish? What is that next, um, I don't want to say owner, but the person who opens and uh... like, what was the thing that made Jin think this, that got him to this place? And it makes the Jin a really interesting character in the process. I admired all of the mythology that was worked into the script. I liked even the study of myths themselves are part of what Alethea's work involves. You know, how myths of old time are now only become, are, are slowly fading more and more away because now we are explaining so many things with science. And that's a topic for, of discussion between the djinn and Alethea. I think that gives us something deeper to look at as the movie's progressing. Of the three stories, which of them stood out most to you? Because for me, it was definitely the third. I'll think of my answer. Please share. What about the third did you find the most compelling? 
I like the character, oh god, um, Zephyr. I like the young girl who uh, comes in the story. I like how she kind of forms a relationship with Jin and where that eventually leads. I think that story leads to the most development between uh, Jin and Alethea later on. That story is a tragedy for Jin. You know, I won't spoil essentially what it is, but that story ends in tragedy. But once you get, it's kind of a roller coaster through it. It becomes kind of a mini movie within itself. And I felt like the other ones are kind of leading to something else, like building on top of one another. And that story I felt like was just so concretely itself that I was just kind of enthralled by the relationship and where it was going. I will agree with you that the third story is, uh, you know what, here's a point to be made. And that is every person who interacts with the djinn, uh, with that kind of djinn and wish grant and wish caster relationship, um, are entirely different from each other. And I'm so thankful that we received that because no one story feels like the one you just heard. That being said, the first story that involves the queen of Shiva as being the wish caster of the djinn, they develop a romance that I loved seeing because the world that surrounds the Queen of Sheba is still, it's so early in the timeline that it's still so magical. Like the things that surround and that are involved with the Queen of Sheba are stuff like instruments that play themselves or, you know, different physical characteristics that you don't see on humans today. It was betrayal. It was love. It was um, desire. And uh, in a world, in a world that I felt was so, um, still magical for being like the real world. I will also concede that in terms of like even the negative reviews, I have to single out the actual like in hotel conversations between Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba are probably the best aspect of the movie because it does really distill the writing to its most purest form. It allows them to kind of bounce off of one another and they obviously can. Um, Tilda, I think is great. Although I do think she's given a couple lines of dialogue where I'm like, that feels a little gimmicky. It feels a bit, you know, kind of, just self-serious, whereas I always believed Idris was the djinn. I always believed his sense of, can he interact with another person? Has he, you know, retained that ability? And then as you kind of get through their conversations, there becomes that uh, there becomes that kind of mutual bond that kind of arises itself that you see more echoes of between, you know, the Queen of Sheba and the other stories later on. This movie is very much about the conversations that we have. As Brandon mentions, it becomes very intimate. Um in the hotel room involving Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba or their characters more rather. And I just think that's, that's credit to the script. I do think that these two are stars and they were able to uh, translate that to the screen, uh, translate the script to the screen in an effective manner. And I never, I never bat my ass once, you know, I, I really was impressed by the way the story connected itself. Now was the content itself and what we saw that enthralling for me first half. Yes. Second half. I can't say the same. For me, this is about as solid as an eight as I can get. Again, I know why people are disliking it. Like, it is really kooky and weird. Like, it's George Miller taking studio money and making a big, bold, ambitious fantasy movie that doesn't always work, that has some questionable writing decisions, that has some, you know, structural decisions, especially in the third act that I don't really vibe with. But when it comes down to it, it's a story about the stories we tell ourselves, the stories that get lost to history, and the ones that we kind of bring back in various forms and how that can help our own emotional states and our own sense of beings. And Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba just do a great job with that. They're both really darn good in this. The technical aspects, if you can get into them, and I understand they're a bit weird, but if you can get into them, they're really fun to watch and there's always something new going on. The stories, at least for me, had me mostly on the edge of my seat. So yeah, it's flawed. It's definitely imperfect. I don't, I can't see myself revisiting it a ton, but I'm really glad I saw it and I'm really glad that George Miller was able to make something like this. Let me mention the details first. Uh, as Brandon say, as Brandon says, storytelling is a story itself. Now, is that super deep? I don't know. But this movie could be looked at 
as a thought piece. Like it is thought provoking when you're watching it. It does give you a sense of like a sense of time, a sense of realism, a sense of what am I here and what am I asking of the world? At least for myself, it did. It covers desire, um, the idea of wanting and how some people lose themselves to it while others immediately, like one of the characters in the story, chuck the gin out into the sea, like immediately get rid of it in front of them. And I found that to be uh, pretty notable. Elba and Swinton are, are not just, you know, submitting something that isn't their absolute best. I think that this, well, not their absolute best, their hard work is shown through their characters and the production design team is beautiful. You know, whether I was captivated by, you know, just a portion of the film, it's like the same team that had worked on it. And so I want to give them their credit. And so this for me is, um, I'm going to give it a six out of 10. While I did enjoy watching it and I'm happy that I have absorbed the story, I would need a good reason to return to it. And somebody who has never seen it is good enough reason for me. Now, do you have to see it in theaters? That's up to you. You would not get added value from in the theater. So seeing it at home is no issue. And that'll do it for episode 35 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for listening and checking it all out with us. Do us a favor if you can. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, at Plot Devices. Give us a follow on there and give us a rating if you can. It really does help push the algorithm to help push the podcast to more people that maybe wouldn't have understood it. And if you want to help us with that too, you can also follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. And, of course, our TikTok page, at Plot Devices Podcast. You'll get our quick hits and hopefully other content coming up there really soon. And, of course, Directorial Debut Season 1, it's coming. We got any picks, you know, predict them in the comments. Let them on social media. You might get them. Uh, over to our social media manager and my fantastic co-host, as usual, Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you online and what have you been uh, enjoying recently? Hello, everyone. I am aware there's a horror title that is out right now that is all the talk, all the gossip. It is Barbarian. While I did want to cover Barbarian on this episode, I felt that I couldn't do it justice unless I sat with it just for a little bit longer. So I do hope to get a review out in some form, whether that's next episode or something inventive. We'll go ahead and see. That'll be part of the discussion in the near future. You can find me online on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Uh, find myself talking about this, talking about that. Every now and then there's a movie in there. Beyond that, I am working hard, burning a lot in the Phoenix heat, baby. It is getting better, though. It is getting better. It was a little cloudy today, and I'll take that as a win. And if you guys want to follow me, you can do so at the Movie King 45. That's at the Movie King 45 on Twitter and Instagram. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram as well. Our first single, Wish, is out right now. More to come fairly soon. You can follow my content and Noah's as well on ASU Odyssey. Give those Just search ASU Odyssey, our names. You can find them there. And again, all of our social media links will be found below. And go follow the podcast if you are so inclined. For that being said, for episode 35, for myself, Brandon King, that is Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices. And we'll catch you guys some other time. 